Welcome back, Data and Driven, episode two. Welcome my co-host, Nick Halen. Nick, this is a point in time when I don't think we could ever be more productive because we are going to double our content with one episode. What do you think of that? I love it. That's not bad. I mean, that's some efficient metrics going on right there. Right, right. That's Armstrong <laughs> math for you right there. Uh, shout out to Robbinsdale Armstrong School that uh, educated me through some formative years. But this pod, we are going to have Elizabeth Denevsky, our principal consultant and data scientist lead at Tessellation, will be interviewing Lane Hart. Lane is the director of customer success at Heap. I am excited about it. I think Lane looks very interesting. So I'm very curious to hear what he has to say. And it's no secret that I'm a huge fan of Elizabeth's. I was actually thinking about this because here we are. I'm on a podcast with you, Nick. You are an amazing guy. Elizabeth is awesome. I I have high hopes for Lane. I was thinking about a quote that is attributed to Warren Buffett. Apparently at a Berkshire Hathaway meeting in 2004, a teenager, which is interesting that a teenager would be at a Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting, but for sure, as the story goes, a teenager got up and asked what advice he has for young people. And Buffett said, it's better to hang out with people better than you. Pick out associates whose behavior is better than yours, and you'll drift in that direction, which is great because here I am with you, Nick, with Elizabeth and coming up with Lane. So very cool. I think my uh, my mom, shout out Sue, uh, used to say you become, you know, you sometimes become the average of your friends. So make sure you surround yourself by the people that you want to, you know, average out to. So, you know, even though I might be sandbagging some of those people, you know, from time to time, uh, bringing them down, hopefully they lift me up and hopefully we can lift each other up here at Tessellation. Oh some my God. Our people. I can't believe you mentioned your mom because I was about to mention my mom. She used to say, she said, you are the company you keep. And essentially it was her way of saying, you know, you got some friends who are dirtbags and <laughs> they look like trouble and I don't think you should be hanging out with them. So uh, both of us got to shout out our mothers today. So that's awesome. All right. Nick, we have been getting some comments on the bumper music and I will put that, that music in the show notes, but it got me thinking, what music are you into? Yeah, I, I like to listen to a lot of things. Um, I'm just going to go right out and say it. The one thing I really don't listen to is pop country. Um, so I can't talk to that in detail. Although going to school in, in Iowa, um, I got to listen to a lot of it tangentially. But in general, I like, I like my indie rock. Um, I went through also you know, a little dance phase that I'm still hanging out with today. And I, by dance music, I mean Daft Punk, LCD Sound System. Um, this band that is uh, releasing an album after 10 years. And the last time I saw him was with my with my my old boss and, and buddy now, um, Aaron. And it was this band called Does It Offend You? Yeah. And I love that name because I think it's a it's a product of uh, the English version of The Office. And it was the boss, you know, the, basically they're Michael saying, no, does it offend you? Yeah. Um, and they just use it as their band name. And last time we saw him was at 7th Street Entry here in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And they they went their separate ways and here we are now 10 you know 10 years later and listen to a lot of that this week so wait their their band name is does it offend you yeah is there a question mark in their band name there's a comma before the yeah and then a question mark afterwards oh, yeah. that is beautiful it's, uh, it's i love that to say. 
I love um, that. Besides that, I mean, this this year, I mean, it's been, you know, I think a lot of artists and stuff have been, you know, dropping some good music, you know, while they've been recording it at home. Unfortunately, a lot of them have not been able to tour, which has been obviously very sad, but, you know, definitely much respect to keeping people's health and stuff in mind with that. Um, Phoebe Bridgers is definitely like the artist of my year, probably this year. Uh, her coming up with her albums and some collaborative efforts have been really good. It's a lot of indie rock. Uh, Sufjan Stevens is, 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 a, is a big one. Um, my wife used to work at First Ave, uh, a rock club here in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Got me into a lot of much, much better music taste, I think, than probably I had before, like Kurt Vile and, and Pyle and those. I didn't mean to rhyme that, but it just happened to happen. Um, a lot of that good music and stuff, too. But otherwise, I can just, you know, put on whatever Spotify Discovery Weekly and just jam on a tablet dashboards or all just workflows. But I like the background music when but I'm not on calls. <laughs> so wait a second. So, okay. So you listen to music while you're working. Or do you need to listen to, I used to work with a guy, a brilliant software developer who mm-hmm. could only listen to music that didn't have lyrics while he was coding, because if he had lyrics, it would, he would start thinking about the words. So do you listen to music that has lyrics, even when you're doing some of that deep concentration? Absolutely. Although for most of my stuff that I think I listen to, if I'm in like head down, like development work is going to be high BPM, um, probably lyrics that didn't even need to be in there, but it could be like a dead mouse track or album that I'm listening to or trying to get into um, Hans Solo, uh, which is a Dutch uh, DJ and he has a lot of good tracks and stuff or just throw on a little bit of uh, Avicii, RIP to the, to the main guy over there. Um, but, you know, I like the high BPM stressing me out probably mentally, but, uh, you know, it's effective uh, for me to be developing with the kind of electronic music in the background. Yeah, I've been, I don't even know the genre of it, but it's called uh, Deep Chill or something on Sirius XM. Mm-hmm. I think it's, um, I could look it up here if I had my stuff together. Uh, or like Spotify, I know has some like nice deep focus playlists and stuff too. I, I throw those on occasionally though. Yeah. Yeah. And Pandora has a chill station, but it seems to be all centered around Moby and Moby's good, but oh, yeah. it, it never branches out enough for me to find new stuff. So I'll have to get into that. Well, interesting. I, I wanted to bring up before we get to the interview, I saw something in the New York Times uh, recently. Mm-hmm. The article was called why the Empire State Building in New York may never be the same. The article is at its core, I think, about commercial real estate, Mm -hmm. the future of in-person work, and some supporting data around it. I thought the article was interesting just based on, it basically took the New York, uh, uh, excuse me, Empire State Building, which I guess arguably would be one of the most iconic buildings in the world and probably the most iconic office building, it's not dominated by any like one mega corporation. It's a lot of midsize and small offices. Mm-hmm. The story was, was cool because as you saw, it opens up basically on an interactive of the Empire State Building. And as you read some of the text, it sort of zooms in in some different areas. I yep. thought the data viz was interesting and cool because it, it would show a floor plan pre-pandemic and then after uh, at least current state, it would visualize the amount of people that left the building. Yeah. I don't know. What do you like when I see something like that? I'm usually pretty impressed. 
but mm-hmm. I like to ask people like yourself, you know, what do you think of that? Was that impressive or not? I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, you know, I think that kind of style, I think is kind of what we refer to as kind of scrolly telling, right? So it's really, you know, hopefully pretty adaptive, uh, responsive on your mobile. So it could work there, but it's also really enjoyable to digest that information on desktop. Um, I'm not sure. I didn't see what technology they might have used to pull this one off. Uh, I'm guessing it's probably not Tableau. Uh, that'd be a, probably a stretch for that one. Could be something like D3JS, which is a very popular visualization um, software to be, or we'll say technique too, um, to be using uh, today on the websites. But I really like the idea that it has a story and, you know, they start with the premise and then unpack the question, you know, how many people or, you know, you know, as a percentage this population, maybe even industry are going to be moving out because they realize maybe they don't need that space to work anymore. Uh, I think they unpacked a lot of the stuff of people kind of coming to terms with, they never thought that they could do what they do unless they had an office. And I think a lot of the stuff was actually they can, they got dogs barking in the background, got babies crying, but as a collective, everyone's realizing that's okay. Like we can still get our stuff done and we can still handle ourselves. Um, one of the things I thought was interesting was it didn't seem like they had like a mass exodus from the building though. And the folks that were leaving, um, and I was actually a little confused at uh, kind of the statistics that they were putting in there. Um, like if they had 3% of folks, let's call it the uh, attrition rate of the folks leaving the building, 2% um, you know, out of the three were, were pointing at the pandemic because of that. So I'm guessing that's out of those 3%, 2% of them pointed to the pandemic. So I'm guessing 66% of that 30%. So that was a little uh, interesting to me. Um, but I thought the whole premise of it and the, and the story that they told with the visualization, you know, you're scrolling through, it's dynamically showing you the building and the floor plans and where people are located and giving you kind of a makeup of all the people in there. I thought it was definitely a powerful way to portray those results. Um, it kind of reminded me of, you know, a couple of these visualizations that are kind of coming up into the, into the real world. And, you know, we see all these statistics and stuff with COVID and everything, the pandemic, and some of them are being very creative in the way that they're visualizing stuff, either because they're trying to get a very specific point across, or maybe they're just getting bored on putting out, you know, a bunch of bar charts all the time. This analysis is definitely a static snapshot of what happened um, up until that point in time. So the way that that would be updated, you know, I'm thinking all, all of a sudden, you know, applying this to a business context, how hard would something like this be to replicate in the business world? And that could be kind of tough. So when I look at these things, it's kind of a nice story and a good point across or to get across. But, you know, when people sometimes bring us these visualizations and they're like, hey, can you make something like this for us? The answer usually is, yeah, but do you want to have it be a sustainable product? How do you update these things? Do you want this to be a live feed of you know people leaving the building and that type of thing? So very impressive. Always has a tent when it comes down to like a static analysis of something when uh, I'm just thinking about from a business context, how would this be sustainable? How do you keep this thing moving? But impressive, absolutely. Yeah. Have you ever been to the top of the Empire State Building? I'm not. I've not been to New York City. I've been to upstate New York before, but I gotta. I think I, I think it's time to visit. Oh man, you know some people out there now too. It's time to go. Yeah. I would recommend it. I've been to the top of the rock, the 30 rock and top of the Empire State Building. And it is uh, quite uh, amazing to look out from that view. 
But speaking at the top, that's a good yes. segue to Elizabeth Denevsky and Lane Hart. They're going to be talking here about data, all things data. They're going to get their geek on awesome. and enjoy, everybody. That's going to be a good combo. Thanks. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Data and Driven podcast, where we're talking all about things surrounding data and folks that are very driven and motivated in the data and analytics community. We have a real treat today, um, Lane Hart with Keep. He is a very exciting and interesting person in the field of data and analytics. So welcome, Lane. Thanks, Lizzie. Yeah, when when you first pitched this idea, I was super excited. Um, it was great to catch up with you again, too, after all of our time working together at IBM and before that, um, studying together at UC. Yeah, super excited to have you here. And can you just talk, give us a little brief overview of what is Heap and what you do there? Heap is a behavioral analytics platform. So we help our customers understand how their users are interacting with their digital surfaces. So if you're building any kind of digital experience, mobile, web, anything like that, we help capture all the interactions on the surface of uh, that experience and understand exactly what those users are doing, where they're getting stuck, how we can make their experience better. Um, and as for some of my backgrounds, I've been doing uh, this role, leading customer success uh, here at Heap for the last two years. And prior to that, uh, I spent seven years working at IBM in our global business services consulting group. Um, and there actually, um, you know, where we had a chance to work together, I covered consumer products and retail uh, for most of my career there. So we were doing things like building digital experiences for retailers and building uh, systems of insight for consumer products companies to better understand what their customers' needs and preferences are. Um, and then we were also analyzing that data for them. So looking at different touch points across a customer uh, or consumer's life cycle and uh, gleaning insights and then automating that for those clients. So uh, it's been a lot of fun. And, and in fact, like really um, has me excited about working in the software space now where we're looking at applying AI to understand patterns behind consumer behavior at massive scale. Yeah, that's that's super interesting and super relevant in today's world. Like we've, we've chatted about quite a bit. Uh, and for those of you that don't know me, uh, my name is Elizabeth Stanowski. I'm a principal consultant and uh, lead of our data science group at Tessellation. Tessellation is a boutique analytics consultancy where we specialize in data visualization, data processing, and data science. We also have an arm for analytics enablement called Data Coach, where we can help your analysts learn tools like Power BI and Tableau. So you make those technical investments and you can actually gain the most out of the tools and the people that are using them. So a little bit about, you know, my background and, uh, you know, Tessellation, the kind of host of this podcast and yeah, setting up and really excited to be working with you again, Lane, and, you know, a fun capacity of just chatting about, you know, everything fun data and analytics and we can nerd out for just a little bit. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to talking, especially about that second part that you mentioned, kind of like teaching folks to fish and helping them enable their own teams to, to get some of these insights themselves. That's very pertinent in the world of like the digital world that we're living in. So in your own words, what does the term digital analytics mean? And why should those who are tuning in today care? That's a great question. I think 
there are a lot of different directions you can take this. The way that I think about it is first starting with just measurement, right? Understanding what's happening within the surface of a digital application. So uh, when, when we say digital, I kind of use that to box in like anything that is related to a digital experience that could be for end consumers, it could be for um, users within a company, um, pretty liberally, like anything that has a screen or has buttons or can be automated. Um, so not thinking so much about the transactional reporting, but thinking about the user interactions, first of all. Um, second of all, I, when we say analytics, sometimes I think we think just about the measurement aspect of things and we don't think enough about actually taking action. And what I care most about, what most of our clients care most about is what's the action that we actually take to move those KPIs that we care about as a business. So I bundle those in along with, um, you know, I, I frankly, I think kind of an overplayed term of data democratization, but really just it, it sums it up well in terms of putting data out there in a way that is understandable for all types of users. So, you know, you don't need to have a, a sophisticated data analytics background or even no SQL, but how do you um, quickly understand what a user's experience is like and what you can do to improve it? Yeah, that really hits home with me because I'm thinking of this one particular client that I worked with and they went through this long process to get their uh, financial data harmonized and it, each of the different business units knew exactly where some of their problems lied in terms of the business, but they weren't able to really articulate and figure out the drivers and we built a couple of dashboards for them starting with just, you know, basic views of their financial data and it was game changing for them. Everything was centralized for the first time and automated. And, you know, it's nothing sexy of, you know, how, what are the customers feeling and interacting with, but uh, it changed the way that they did their business and just understanding the data and being able to really use it um, versus before it was trying to figure out a spreadsheet or something and um, making a, I think it was a Tableau dashboard that um, it wasn't necessarily overly sophisticated or anything, but they were finally able to pinpoint the biggest uh, leakers in their business. And that was something that um, was huge for them. Yeah, this is definitely a theme that I, I've seen repeatedly over the years, which is that there are sometimes just those foundational elements where you need to do some blocking and tackling and have a common definition that everyone agrees to in terms of the key KPIs, where to find them, uh, which dimensions you'll slice them around. Otherwise, you end up sometimes in this spreadsheet hell where you have like all these different spreadsheets flying around. They might be in Google Drive or Box or wherever. And it's like, who's on first? Which version of the spreadsheet are we using today? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that'll probably hit home for a lot of our, our listeners today. Uh, I love so spreadsheets, don't get me wrong. I make dozens <laughs> of spreadsheets every day. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a, I feel like a necessary evil sometimes when you're you're working in the analytics space of um, sometimes they're so easy and they do a lot, but sometimes they, yeah. they're a blessing. They're a blessing and a curse, you know? Um, and I think a lot of folks, you know, feel the same. Yeah, it's great to get to that prototype of like, hey, here's what it looks like. Here's how we could calculate it. Let's think about how to make this a little more scalable. What's, what have you seen in terms of the democratization piece of digital analytics? Like, is there, do you have any interesting stories of clients or um, times where you've seen a real like aha moment of finally being able to grasp something? Where I see a, a lot of like leverage with digital analytics is actually in discovering the things that aren't used 
So in a lot of digital experiences today, uh, there's tons of, you know, there's like this, this uh, coding word cruft, which is just like unnecessary code that's built up. Um, and, and we use that sometimes to talk about the digital experience too. Like you've built all of these edge casey feature functions for different folks, uh, but they're not relevant anymore or users have moved on or your UI was so convoluted that no one could even find them. So one of the things that I find most rewarding is actually discovering the things that folks are not using and then launching experiments to determine um, are they not, you know, perhaps why they're not using them to test some hypotheses around, is it discoverability? Is it the usefulness? Is it that they're not thinking about, uh, you know, your, your product or your application that way? Um, so it's kind of, you know, that's a little bit of a, uh, uh, you know, a turn from probably what you expect in an answer to that. Um, but I, I find that there's a lot of value in that because it allows you to free up time from focusing on things that you know you you thought mattered or maybe you spent a lot of time building because somebody you know had a really bad experience but being able to just simplify the experience is one of the most rewarding things for me you know while you're talking through that i'm thinking of all of the apps that have gotten updated over the years and when there's a good app update and i can find something easier or um, certain features that are gone, you know, that they say, oh, maybe it wasn't as relevant, but then doing some testing and it's like, oh, you know, uh, I'm thinking of this like add to schedule button that I love on, on some of the apps that I use. And I remember one time with an update, it was taken out. I'm like, no, what am I going to do? Um, but yeah, it, it's interesting to see how the smallest things can impact the whole user yeah. experience. Yeah, I mean, like one like really practical example is, you know, I'm sure you've gone through some of these like forms or experiences where you have all of these fields to fill out. And sometimes it's just really daunting. And if you're if you're especially if you're in the top of the funnel where folks are just considering, should I engage with you? Should I, you know, buy uh, this thing? Right. Like whether it's a subscription to, uh, uh, you know, vitamins or razors or buying a mattress, like they're all different you know types of consideration. But um, removing as many of those steps as possible to make that experience as frictionless as possible is super important. And I mean, I recently worked with a client who was able to condense the number of things that they were asking folks to fill in upfront by a third. So wow. they were able to increase the conversion through that funnel by like 26% just by auto suggesting what they think the customer would fill in and allowing the customer to change it later versus asking them to engage with, you know, 30 different fields and gather all this information that honestly, the information was for them, not for the customer or to improve the customer's experience. One thing I love about this conversation is I think it's easy for a lot of people to put themselves in the shoes of, of the, the user of like, Going on to a website, you're thinking about purchasing a new product. And um, I know for sure I've been in places where I have to, there's so many different forms and levels to just do a very like a $10 purchase or something. And yeah. you just, I just abandoned the cart. It's, it's not worth trying to find, you know, figure out where's my credit card. It can't pull my information or whatnot. And um, yeah, I think it's, it's super relevant and interesting. And because we live in a digital world now, you know, there's no way yeah. around it especially I think COVID of everything um, really made it evident how quickly everything just can to some extent have some, some digital component. Yeah, I mean, another thing along those lines that, that is really, really high impact is 
you know, we're, we're all making changes really quickly to the digital experiences, to the digital products. And sometimes things break, right? Like if things don't break occasionally, you're probably not iterating enough, but you want to know as soon as those things break, especially if it's in a critical part of, you know, a flow or an application. I mean, I like I have tons of personal examples where I'm trying to order food online and, you know, I get stuck. And yeah, I'll just switch to the next app that I can use to order food. Um, same thing happens in like, uh, application flows for lending with a lot of our clients mm. where they'll make a change, um, you know, for example, maybe on a form field validation where they added new validation logic to try to reduce fraud in their app. And they actually just, you know, bumped everybody out of the flow because the validation was incorrect. Um, you know, in, in for a lender, if you leave that on for a day, you might be losing hundreds of thousands of dollars. So we have countless examples of clients who have found uh, those kind of errors in their forms or in their flows um, immediately and just been able to stop the bleeding and roll back a change. So you can experiment a lot more confidently knowing that wherever those breakages happen, you'll find them right away. We live in such a digital world uh, where there there's always some digital component of everything. And while everything that we've talked about sounds great, even though it's technology, nothing's ever perfect. And there's a lot of challenges to get there. So what are some of the challenges that organizations face when they go to move towards digital analytics and, and that digital experience? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, there are a few different things. So one, I think, is getting distracted by the shiniest new thing, whatever that is. So in our space, I mean, obviously now I work in the, the SaaS space, so like working in software. Um, sometimes I see customers who just buy tons of software thinking that all the software is going to solve their problems but the fundamentals are bad like they can't define a specific yep. core kpi that they're trying to move so getting distracted by shiny objects or trying to do too much before you've nailed down the the fundamentals of either you know definitions of what of what your kpis are or um you know roughly what your architecture looks like the second thing um, is just having a single view of the entity that you care about. So by that, you know, it could be many different things. It could be a single view of the consumer. It could be a single view of the user if you're an app, a single view of a store if you're a CPG. Um, and then being able to parlay that into granular segmentation. So um, sometimes I see customers get stuck because they have imperfect data. We were talking about this a little bit where, you know, it's like, oh, I don't have, you know, I don't have all the data, right? But sometimes you may have half the data about who customers are or about a specific attribute of their identity. And that's often enough to get started. And having some data begets having more high quality data. Um, and, and, you know, also just kind of avoiding uh, the, the, one of the, the other pitfalls just of trying to make things perfect before really like moving on to start experimenting. So it's, that's a little bit at odds with the first point, but striking that balance between, you know, um, having trustworthy data versus being able to move quickly. And then the last couple of things. So one, not having enough people that are hands-on with the data. So, um, you know, just th there's sometimes a lack of curiosity where, you know, if, if I don't have access to look at the data that I care about, and I'm often talking about an end consumer's, um, you know, behavioral data. So how does someone interact with our digital experience? Um, if I'm, uh, you know, a director or a VP or a CXO, and I can't see what that actually looks like, 
I'm now reliant on teams of other people to like create, you know, uh, slides or Excel spreadsheets about insights. So that democratization piece is sometimes a challenge. Um, yeah. But I really actually boil that down to curiosity. So a culture of curiosity and uh, flexibility to be able to ask questions and to just test hypotheses. And then the last thing is a top-down or a leadership mandate to iterate and to constantly change. So keeping your eye on what's next, um, you know, next in a month and in a year and in a couple of years and what, what are your competitors doing? So having that um, organizational capability to just embrace change, not get distracted by it, but to have, you know, 20% of your effort focused on iteration of your digital experience. So those are, I guess, challenges and opportunities. They can go either way. Um, but yeah, I think th those are a few of the things that, that are on top of my mind right now. And I think it's interesting how related that is to, to data science and just anything in analytics specifically, because you're never going to reach perfect. And it's better to start with, with something that you've got done pretty well in terms of data and, and go on from there. Because I think everybody, especially when it comes to integrating technology, expects perfection yep. at the get-go. And that's very much not what it is. What can we control and what can we change to make it as great as it can be to get the, the insights that we need? Yeah, absolutely. So not getting distracted by the shiny new thing or just buying a bunch of tools, uh, not being hamstrung by not having a single view or relationship between the entities, um, you know, that, that mandate to just get hands on with the data and get some personal experience of curiosity, and then uh, the change management and just the mandate to iterate and constantly spend time on improving the experience. So another topic I really was excited to talk to you about today is digital analytics in this consumer packaged goods industry. Um, CPG is something very close to you and I, and for anybody tuning in the call that knows me, um, I don't really shut up about consumer packaged goods. I think it's a very interesting industry with a lot of different components. So one thing I noticed, you know, with, with COVID is the multi-channel of, re of retail and, and consumer goods. You know, I think places that were originally just brick and mortar are going to have more e-commerce, whereas solely e-commerce sites are going to have some sense of brick and mortar now. So um, have you seen any interesting trends in terms of channel mix with uh, the pandemic or, you know, and after? Yeah, I think a lot of this goes actually into the before and after of the pandemic as well. So, you know, if you if you think about something like the experience of, you know, buying razors or buying vitamins, um, those are things which, you know, if, if you're on some kind of routine, you're probably consuming them, you know, at, at a routine pace. But there may be things that, um, that that take you off track. You know, for example, if I'm normally ordering razors, uh, you know, at a regularly scheduled scheduled interval and I don't touch my subscription for a year, I'm happy with that. You know, now all of a sudden, um, you know, somebody else is using the razors or I'm going on vacation. Uh, I want to be able to just pick some up on my way out the door or to the airport to uh, that will work with the same handles. So I think, you know, you have this ecosystem having availability in multiple channels is key um, to building that that moat in terms of the brand and just interchangeability of the product. So I, I think that will continue and I'm excited about that. Uh, I think it's another thing that's exciting about it is that you can link 
the um, kind of the, the online behaviors, that first party behavior all the way back up into the supply chain to you know try to get some signal on um, where demand might shift from one channel to another. Um, and I, I have some things that we could talk about a little bit later related to that specifically. So one thing I noticed, you know, with, with COVID is the multi-channel of re of retail and, and consumer goods. You know, I think places that were originally just brick and mortar are going to have more e-commerce, whereas solely e-commerce sites are going to have some sense of brick and mortar now. So um, have you seen any interesting trends in terms of channel mix with uh, the pandemic or, you know, and, and after? Yeah, I think a lot of this goes actually into the before and after of the pandemic as well. So, you know, if you if you think about something like the experience of, you know, buying razors or buying vitamins, um, those are things which, you know, if, if you're on some kind of routine, you're probably consuming them, you know, at, at a routine pace. But there may be things that, um, that that take you off track. You know, for example, if I'm normally ordering razors, uh, you know, at a regularly scheduled scheduled interval and I don't touch my subscription for a year, I'm happy with that. You know, now all of a sudden, um, you know, somebody else is using the razors or I'm going on vacation. Uh, I want to be able to just pick some up on my way out the door or to the airport to uh, that will work with the same handles. So I think, you know, you have this ecosystem having availability in multiple channels is key um, to building that that moat in terms of the brand and just interchangeability of the product. So I, I think that will continue and I'm excited about that. Uh, I think it's another thing that's exciting about it is that you can link the um, kind of the, the online behaviors, that first party behavior all the way back up into the supply chain to you know try to get some signal on um, where demand might shift from one channel to another. Um, and I, I have some things that we could talk about a little bit later related to that specifically. Yeah, I think that's a great segue in. So it's interesting as these DTC companies uh, continue to rise, the traditional area of consumer packaged goods was marketing and supply chain. And now as we have more of these DTC, it's that gray area of getting involved in retail space. Um, how has digital analytics contributed to this and what are you seeing uh, with organizations and, and as this continues to grow? Yeah, it's a really interesting trend. So I'll start actually, this is probably five or six years ago um, when I worked, uh, when, I, when I was at IBM working and consulting for a really large CPG and what we, were, we were in the consumer health space and we were trying to marry together all of these you know, first and third party signals that we had. Mm -hmm. So we had, you know, things like uh, like syndicated retail data. Uh, we had like shipment data. We had uh, call centers. We had social media. We had weather. So we had like this massive data set. And what we were trying to do is tie it all together to get to, uh, you know, like one, you know, uh, the ability to, to add as much segmentation as possible. So by geography or by consumer segment, and one of the challenges, obviously, like not all those dimensions are available on each of the pieces of data that I mentioned. So um, we, we ended up basically not being able to zoom down at a very low level. We could get down to like a DMA level, but we couldn't get down to like an individual household level with all mm -hmm. of those pieces of data because we lacked the unique identifiers. So that was a, the challenge that we had, you know, five, six years ago. Fast forward to today, many of the clients that we work with, so companies that were, you know, digitally native, direct to consumer, consumer products um, are 
now being acquired by those really large consumer products companies because the consumer products companies, I think, want a couple of things. One, they want um, you know more signal on what consumers need, and they have a direct surface to interact with them without being intermediated by you know retailers or other distributors. Second, um, they they want to be able to cross sell and upsell their products within uh, the context of that digital experience that those DTCs have created. So I, I think those are a couple of the, the areas where those lines are blurring, and there's a lot more interplay between the two. Um, but to be clear, I mean the retailers know this, right? And retailers for a long time have had you know generics that have competed with big brands. Um, so th there's always been this like kind of competition, but it's also pushing the retailers to um, build better digital experiences and then share that data in a privacy safe way with the consumer products and the, the brand, um, the brands. So um, I think there's, you know, there's gonna be a little bit of both, but um, one thing that is certain is we can now get down to an individual user level based on their uh, in-store behavior, their transactions, as well as their online digital behavior, which is really cool. Yeah, it, that's a very unique time that we're playing in in the, the consumer goods industry, for sure. Yeah, and that obviously relates to all kinds of other things, too, in the acquisition funnel and trialing yeah. and launching new products. So, you know, how do you sense those needs um, before you either get, one, you know, disintermediated from the, the value chain, or two, uh, before somebody else builds a more bespoke, a bespoke product than what you offer. So being able to just launch those new products up and get them into the hands of consumers to see what they think. Brand loyalty in general has been diminishing. So now that we have this digital aspect, right? So we we're collecting more data. We're being able to figure out a little bit more what, what are the drivers behind some of these purchases. Um, do you expect brand loyalty to get stronger since um, companies can tune in to some of that information? Or do you think a lot of these competitors that keep popping up is going to continue driving this issue with brand loyalty? No, I think there's actually, I mean, there's definitely space for both. I, what mm -hmm. I really love about this space is that those upstarts really challenge, challenge us as consumers, as well as those really large brands to think differently and to improve their consumer's experience. Um, so, you know, one example is uh, if you're talking about, you know, something like, like hair care or makeup, there's a lot of like fine tuning and configuration needed. So, there, you know, if you were putting these things on shelves, uh, you know, it's unlikely that you find the right thing or as a CPG, it's unlikely that you can even get enough shelf space for all of the different SKUs that you might want to put out there. So um, gleaning insights from some kind of configuration space online. So, hey, like, tell me more about yourself and your habits and your needs. And now we're going to create this hyper customized mix. I see this a lot. Um, like specifically in vitamins and supplements, but also in hair, hair care and skin care, where there's an opportunity to learn from like which, you know, if let's just say you're, you're looking at something where there are dozens of configuration options or questions that lead to configuration suggestions. That's a huge opportunity to learn, you know, what, what are the most resonant options with consumers that you might highlight when you're positioning your brand? And second, uh, what are some new SKUs that we might be able to create if we were to create something just on the shelf that would resonate with more folks um, in a way that is much faster than, you know, doing lots of 
um, you know, research and focus groups. And, you know, often we find that there are like very specific configurations that uh, we didn't think users would have chosen. So feeding that data back into the physical product development uh, lifecycle, as well as uh, be able to use that to optimize the supply chain. So if, you know, configuring one option means that upstream, you're going to need, you know, a couple more tons of this ingredient, um, you can get those signals really early and make sure that you ship your products as quickly as possible, which is another one of those aspects and you know, kind of like killer trends is just, I want this thing yesterday and um, you know, I, I want it in as frictionless a way as possible. So I don't wanna have to think about putting it on a list and then picking it up or potentially having it be out of stock. I want it highly configured and delivered immediately. I think it's really interesting that you brought the supply chain aspect when talking about customization, because that's two departments that traditionally don't get along, you know, marketing's wanting to try new things and customizing and all, you know, whatever. And supply chain likes how they do things. They, they take a lot of lead time and whatnot, but, you know, as these companies are gathering these profiles and more data and being able to get the synergies between, even if it's a highly customized product, mm -hmm. you know, what are those synergies of those base ingredients and whatnot and sourcing, uh, sort of like from the procurement to the, you know, end product processing and, and distributing side, like having a more holistic picture of what's going on is going to really disrupt the space. Yeah. I mean, the other thing I think is really cool is that you have an opportunity to nudge consumers in the, the direction that you can best meet their needs. So by that, I mean, you know, if we can optimize in near real time what we're showing consumers or what's available, uh, right? Like don't even show them the things that are out of stock or that will be out of mm -hmm. stock or that won't ship quickly to them. Um, this is something that Amazon is just like killer at because of their their ecosystem and the amount of data that they have, the amount of distribution points and everything else. Um, but you know, this, little it's it's kind of you know uh adjacent to the the cpg space but mm -hmm. we're talking about fresh goods so things like um you know we, we also work with a lot of flower delivery companies uh, like you mentioned that's that's been huge just thinking about like how do i stay top of mind with friends or relatives um, but you know other things even more practical like uh, box subscriptions or uh, be able to configure what's in a box whether it's um, you know a box of produce or other life limited products making sure that um, you surface the products that need to come off the shelves because they're going to spoil in order to reduce waste which has all kinds of other benefits you know for consumers for businesses for the planet yeah, and I think even as the entire landscape is changing, a lot of those fundamentals are not, right? So I, you know, mm -hmm. working in perishable CPG, especially uh, waste, everything's about waste, minimizing waste and having product, good product to go out to the right place at the right time. So uh, tuning into some of those, sensing some of those um, shifts in consumption and whatnot can really help manage that supply chain issue. I know one thing that was interesting at the beginning of a pandemic, I was working with a client and um, their sales were not necessarily shifting one way or another, like overall, but where how people were consuming the product. So it mm -hmm. was people were no longer buying single servings of um, beverages or snacks or anything along those lines. You know, you're not going to a casual gas station to pick something up. You're not traveling and just, oh, I'm going to grab 
um, a quick drink or you know a quick snack bar. It was let's buy in bulk. Let's buy for the next month. Are we going to leave the house? You know, family size and these you know people who traditionally you would get your business from some of these smaller scale items um, and just being able to sense some of those even if it's the same product, how it's packaged, how it's delivered, how it's, where it's put, um, you know, is interesting. And I think the overall consumption patterns, even after COVID, I'm interested to see how they're going to shift over time. Yeah, it's, it's also one of those interesting things where, um, you know, if, if you're dealing with distributed, you know, distributing products, there's a, a really long lead time to see how consumers' trends are, you know, preferences are changing. Um, so I, I think that's where it's exciting to be able to tie like, you know, near real time or even real time behavior uh, online with uh, current preferences versus what's happening in the news, what's happening in my local area. I mean, well, there's a little bit of a, a, a side note, but one of the things I worked on before I left IBM was IBM had acquired the weather company. And one of the main reasons why IBM bought the weather company is because weather is probably the single biggest predictor of consumer behavior and just, you know, like all kinds of other pieces of the, the value chain. Uh, but we were using weather signals to target advertising to users that was hyper relevant to where they were. And it's something that's super privacy safe because you're just talking about, you know, like, hey, what what's your rough area? You know, you're in the New York area, so we don't need a precise location. And what's your relative weather experience? Like on, you know, Monday, the temperature dropped from like 90 degrees on Sunday to 60 degrees on Monday. And I, I literally like shifted from buying uh, iced coffee to making hot coffee the next day. So thinking about like those localized factors, whether it's browsing behavior or weather behavior, being able to tie those together to forecast like those movements in demand on a short-term basis also links back to an earlier part of the conversation of being able to offer consumers more choices, especially if it's something that you know has a long lead time to ship or deliver or is bound to, to spoil over a certain period of time. Yeah, and I know I've had the same conversation in the last couple of weeks, but um, not just in terms of weather, but also mobility, right? So, mm. you know, that's that's almost a derivative of weather and, you know, what are what are people doing in real time? And I know we can get some of that, like when you add in the digital aspect of it, when you add in the, mo the mobility aspect and the weather aspect, some of these factors that have nothing to do with the products mm -hmm. themselves, just the consumers and what's going on there. Uh, you know, that sets the base, right? You know, it's, right. it's, it's so much information and um, it seems so simplistic to an extent, but, you know, people follow very similar patterns and behaviors mm -hmm. and, um, you know, it's, sometimes, you know, the weather's good and you want to buy uh, a cold coffee and you're going to go down the street and splurge. And if it's, you know, I live in Chicago, if it's, you know, below, below freezing and snow's falling, I'm going to wrestle up whatever I have in, inside and not, you know, leave the house for a couple of right. days. Yeah, that's actually an interesting point for, um, for, for upstart brands and large brands alike, that the digital experience as a complement to the, the physical experience or the in-store, uh, in-location experience um, is, is really important for staying top of mind. So, you know, there, there's a lot more, I guess, in, in two different ways. One, um, from a retention standpoint, so how do you like maintain 
that you know share of wallet or share of consumption of a specific category um, that that fulfills a specific need. The other, just in terms of like the the content and virality of the I maybe mean, virality is a bad thing to say these days, but um, you know just in terms of how you share your experience with right. a brand. Um, you know, this is one thing that like uh, meal subscription services I use, I think I've done really well. Um, is you know they're they're meeting two different needs. One is like they provide an experience where you can cook something, but they also have, you know, so, and they have a physical app where you can adjust your subscription, but the app is actually a conduit to deliver an entire experience, which is, mm -hmm. you know, I now feel like I'm actually doing a lot more work than I am when I just rip the bag open and dump all the stuff out on the counter. Um, and, and that creates a, you know, a positive affinity to their brand. Um, and it creates an experience that allows you to gather more digital insights about how folks are behaving, how frequently they're engaging. So uh, I think from the retention standpoint for brands, uh, this is a great way to build a moat around your brand um, and discover new needs that customers might have that or, or consumers might have that we didn't think of before. Yeah. And, and I think it's super important to remember that, yes, we're talking all about digital and what's possible and integrating it with supply chain and whatnot. But at the end of the day, these are just regular people consuming the products. They're people like you and me. Um, they're people who really love meal kits, who really love coffee, who really love skincare. I know I'm, I'm one of those with the skincare. I've, that's something I've picked up over the last year. And um, that's one thing I love about this industry. It's it's just regular people using the products, having an experience, and you can really put yourself in, in the shoes of that person. You, what's that experience? What's, what do you want them to feel? How, what do you want the results to be? And, um, you know, it's, it's great as much digital aspects and traditional aspects we want to put around it. But at the end of the day, it's all about improving that experience of that customer. Yeah. So, I mean, in this actually, like earlier we were talking about um, you know, how like the, the impact of advertising and just, you know, how, how expensive advertising is or how expensive it is to acquire really high quality customers. And that's actually, you know, I think that's where the real unlock comes in. There's obviously measuring the acquisition process and funnel, but then uh, retaining those customers over the long term is where you're actually going to make money. Mm -hmm. And if, if you can't figure out how to retain those customers that are really expensive to acquire, uh, meaning their trialing experience or their first time buying experience has to be stellar so that they keep coming back. Um, it's discovering like what are those specific moments or you know moments of delight or frustration that will either you know retain or attract a specific customer. And and a lot of those, you know, a, a lot of that is you know, asking, right? So you can you can reach out, you can survey customers, but if you've already created a digital surface where it's really easy to feed that experience back into uh, the manufacturer or the retailer, then, you know, it's, it's I'm sure you'll be able to capture, um, you know, to, to make decisions a lot more quickly and optimize, you know, kind of uh, a, a lot faster. Yeah. So I have one last question for you today, Lane. What books or podcasts are you listening or reading to right now? Yeah, so um, I actually just got a recommendation from uh, a colleague of mine, um, and I'm reading this book called You're Not Listening, and uh, it was written by uh, a New York Times contributor, and it's it actually it kind of like goes into a bunch of different things, but I think it's super relevant to uh, what we're talking about here, which is like, you know, listening, right? Just like understanding mm -hmm. what 
needs are. And this isn't, you know, the book is not at all about consumer products, but it's very universal in terms of having conversations, understanding what folks' needs are, and um, really how important it is to listen and engage in conversation. Um, and which I think is, you know, something that as like a, a world is really important for us right now. What about you? Yeah, um, I am. I just finished up listening to this series called um, Chameleon, the Hollywood Con Queen. It's, it's kind of irrelevant, but it's kind of relevant. So it's interesting about human behavior and it's about um, different gig workers in um, Hollywood who are essentially conned and how were they caught They're you know, mm. very down to earth people just doing their job and, you know, what, how this one person had this whole scheme and, um, you know, pulled on things that they were motivated by. And it's interesting because, um, you know, we're again, talking about consumers, talking about how people are motivated and what they're motivated by. And, um, it was super interesting and just put in perspective of um, no matter how smart someone is, I don't think there's something as a rational consumer. It's uh, it's all over the place. And these are very rational people who got conned out of thousands of dollars um, from this Hollywood scam. Yeah, it's crazy. Wow, that but, sounds um, super interesting. I'm definitely going to check that I, out. I binged it in two days. It was like 10, 10 episodes or something. So highly recommend it to anybody who's listening. Um, the Chameleon uh, the Hollywood con queen. So it's really, yeah. This has been really fun. Yeah. Thanks for having yeah, me. Yeah. Thanks for coming. Um, so if anybody has any questions for you, what's the best way for them to contact you? Oh gosh. I'm definitely an open book. You can reach me lots of different ways. Um, my, my fiance always jokes that LinkedIn is my social network of choice. So you can always <laughs> reach out to me on LinkedIn, um, L A N E H A R T. Uh, or you can always send me an email. Uh, my, my heap email is just lane at heap.io. Perfect. So we'll make sure that anybody who has any questions on digital analytics or um, brand and consumer products will I'll reach out to you. So thank you again for joining us today. And it's always a pleasure. And thank you all for tuning in. And thank you, Elizabeth. Well done. That's the show. If you've got feedback or questions, the best place to reach us is through either tech or datacoach.com or hit me up at LinkedIn. My profile is in the show notes. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast app and tell your friends, tell your family, maybe your grandma would love this podcast. You would never know if your grandma would love this podcast unless you had your grandma listen to it. So share it with your grandma. I'd like to thank my co-host for this show, Nick Halen. A big thanks to Lane Hart and Elizabeth Denevsky, or as I want to call them now, Lizzie Lane and the Data All-Stars. If you guys start a band, please think about that name. The music you heard today was by the Sticky Lifters. Check them out on Spotify or Apple Music. And a big thanks to our sponsors. Tessellation is a modern data analytics consultancy. We enable and manage organizations, analytics, and self-service teams by educating people, optimizing technology, and developing world-class products and sustainable results. Data Coach, where most analytics training programs lack depth, Data Coach provides wisdom. Our modern curriculum is unparalleled, comprising video lessons, hands-on exercises, and a capstone project designed around your company's data. Data Coach also offers a truly premium service, one-on-one coaching. 
The Sticky Lifters again playing us out with their title track of their album. This one's called The Antidote. See you all next time on Data and Driven. Let's see.